0: One hundred years ago, a crush of white and black servicemen returned from war abroad and landed in conflict at home.
1: And then you have these hundreds of thousands of African-American veterans who are returning from war and they are publicly wearing their uniforms and simultaneously demanding first-class citizenship.
0: I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought learns about the little-known racist riots across the U.S. that became known as the Red Summer of 1919. And each year, thousands of literary pilgrims travel to Flannery O'Connor's Milledgeville home. This summer, archaeologists are there for a dig. A person ought to
2: visit the home of his or her favorite writer, because you need to hear the same silences that person heard.
0: Find out why researchers want to know more about the beloved authors, beloved peacocks, and one species fights at the edge of extinction on Georgia's coast. We dive in deep. First, the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Six endangered North Atlantic right whales died in June, four of them last week alone, which brings Georgia's official state marine mammal even closer to extinction. Researchers estimate that just 411 North Atlantic right whales remain, so six dying a month among them three of breeding age, is significant. Clay George is among those monitoring the numbers. He's a wildlife biologist with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. I spoke with him earlier via Skype to learn about threats to the dwindling population, how the Georgia coast figures into their life cycle, and first, the origins of their name.
3: We think right whales got their name uh, centuries ago because they were the species that uh, whalers preferred for hunting. Uh, They're about 40 feet long, Uh, to put that in perspective, that's about the size of a school bus. If I was to put one in the room with you, um, its back would be higher than the ceiling. They're very rotund. Um, They have very large blubber supplies, which is what the the whalers were um, largely after for whale oil. They also have huge plates of baleen that they used to feed with, and baleen was used uh, centuries ago as kind of an early form of plastic. And also, uh, whalebone was really an important commodity uh, centuries ago.
0: What role does Georgia play in its life cycle?
3: Yeah, so uh, the Georgia coast is really the the core area of the North Atlantic right whales calving grounds. There's no other calving grounds for this species has been found in recent centuries. Um, And... uh, uh, back in the 1700s, 1800s, right whales occasionally would, um, um, uh, were still being found along the coast of Europe and Africa, but they were basically uh, extirpated or driven uh, to extinction on the other side of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And then by the uh, 20th century, small numbers were being seen here uh, along the, the coast of the U.S. But really, um, scientists believed they were more or less functionally extinct because there were so few remaining.
0: So why did they come here in particular, to DeKalb, Calv- or where are they coming from?
3: Yeah, so by the 1970s, small numbers of right whales were being seen occasionally in New England and Canada, um, and even along the coast of um, Georgia and Florida, but no one really knew where they came from or how many there were. And then a lot of exciting things started happening in the uh, early 1980s that um, really uh, uh led to the rediscovery of the right whale, really. Um, a feeding area was found uh, in the Bay of Fundy in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, with a couple dozen animals, including some calves. Uh, down here in Georgia, a couple um, uh, baby right whale calves washed up dead on the Georgia coast on a couple different islands, which meant that they must have been born fairly close to here. And then in 1983, the big break was that a photograph that DNR biologists took in 1979 of a mother and calf off of St. Simons Island was matched to a a, um, female uh, that was in the Newland Aquarium's catalog from their work up north. And that was the first confirmation that those animals must be coming here to have their calves. Uh, And then that led um, to some really interesting work with um, some volunteer uh, pilots, um, pilots from Delta Airlines that volunteered their aircraft, um, working with the New England Aquarium, and they started doing some aerial surveys down here, and lo and behold, they actually found mother and calf right whales. So these animals had been had somehow survived uh, near extinction from whaling, uh, battled back probably from you know, only 100 animals, we think, or so, and, and were calving right here off the, off the Georgia coast and, and northeast Florida coast, and it had gone unknown to science.
0: So uh, coming from New England, the Bay of Fundy, wh- how, how, where are they roaming around the ocean, and what are they looking for?
3: well that 's one of the hard things about um, protecting right whales at any time we don 't know where most of the animals in the species are. Right now, we know there are about four hundred to four hundred and twenty five um, uh, North Atlantic right whales, and we know that because each individual right whale by the time they 're about one years old, will develop this unique white pattern on their head that 's kind of like a fingerprint. And uh, through different types of statistical analyses and photographing these animals over time, um, year after year, uh, you can estimate how, how many of, of them uh, there are. And so, in the, for the most part, we believe in the um, uh, summer months, they're up north um, in, in New England or Canada feeding on small plankton. Um, and then for whatever reason... Uh, During the uh, winter months, the pregnant females and a a smattering of other uh, non-calving whales will make the 1,000-mile migration down the coast uh, to the calving grounds here off Georgia and Florida.
0: And you, of course, are closely watching the number of calves birthed each year to track population growth. You filmed a video of a right whale with a two-week-old calf. This is in January. Let's hear a little bit of that. (laughs) As we are listening, how and when do you usually spot new whales?
3: Well, down here in the southeast, because it's such a big area, and because even in a great year, there's probably only a couple dozen mothers and calves, um, we really rely heavily on survey aircraft. And so uh, we contract with a nonprofit out of Florida called Sea to Shore Alliance, and the state of Florida has their own survey aircraft. And basically, these teams work together and they fly standardized surveys off the Georgia coast um, from December to March, uh, from about Savannah, Georgia down to about Cape Canaveral, Florida. And um, on any good weather day, they're up flying uh, along the coast looking for uh, the telltale sign of a mother and calf or other right whales. And and that's basically looking for these big black objects in the water, um, often some white water where they splash around um, and the like.
0: This is a a, a fascinating thing it must be to witness. You don't actually see them calved, but you see the calves probably in the water with the mothers. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, well, believe it or not, actually, two different times uh, since these surveys started back in the 80s, uh, right whale mothers have actually been seen from the air by survey teams while they were having birth, wow. which is pretty amazing. Um, but for the most part, you're correct. We find them um, uh, when they've already, you know, had their had their calves. Um, and in the case of that pair we saw um, uh, earlier or last month, um, you know, 2 two-week-old right whale might only be at one to two tons. Um, which sounds uh, pretty big, right? But then when you see them next to their moms, their moms can weigh 40 to 50 tons. So it's really an amazing see, uh, sight to be sitting out in the ocean away from land and see these primordial animals, you know, floating out there, nursing their calves, um, and, and to know that they were almost driven to extinction. They've somehow managed to, um, to hold on, and they're still here with us.
0: Clay George is with us. He's a wildlife biologist with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources, and he's been closely monitoring right whales. This is a primary along the coast of Georgia, South Carolina, and Florida primary calving spot for right whales. Well, let's talk a little bit about the population that whale births really dropped off in 2010. What are some of the theories of the Department of Natural Resources about why?
3: Yeah, so last year was the first year that not a single right whale calf was seen, um, either here on the calving grounds or up north when the animals migrate, uh, would be migrating back. Um, and that was very concerning because uh, uh, record numbers of right whales have been dying from primarily human activities in recent years, primarily from um, ship collisions, and uh, the big one now is entanglement in commercial fishing rope. So up north, where the water is colder... Uh, there's a lot of fisheries where they use um, traps or pots that are on the bottom of the ocean. And in order to get those pots back up to the surface, they have, the fishermen have to use really heavy synthetic rope. And so now we know that about 80% of all right whales have uh, scars from having been tangled in, in this rope before. The entanglement rate is growing at about 6% per year. Um, and since 2017, um, almost 5% of the entire species has actually died hmm. from um, ship strikes and entanglement in, in fishing rope.
0: So part of your work is to disentangle them. Here's some sound of a team helping to detangle a right whale named Ruffian.
3: Well, let's keep some pressure on it. Let's let her pull it. Yeah, yeah. Go whale power. Okay.
0: Look. No, not in
3: it's in there? Okay. I saw it lift up. The okay. Good, on. good, good, good. I thought I saw slackness in the line.
0: Clay, what's going on there?
3: Yeah, so basically that's probably one of the, the kind of stranger, crazier things that, that we do. Occasionally, about once a year on average, a right whale will show up. Uh, and I say show up here because uh, typically they're entangled in, in heavy rope from places um, north of here. Um, and basically, um, if we can't, can't get the rope off of them in some cases, uh, they'll almost certainly die. And so in this particular case, uh, this right whale that we knew um, very well named Ruffian because he has all these scars from having been entangled in, in something um, uh, back in 2008, he showed up um, entangled in rope. Uh, we were able to get a tracking buoy on him overnight, get out the next day with the team from the state of Florida, and, and cut this rope off of him. And, and when uh, he swam free, thankfully, um, we pulled this rope up and it turned out that at the bottom he had been dragging a 130-pound, um, six-foot diameter snow crab pot all the way from Canada wow. over 1,000 miles. Hmm. Uh, so if we hadn't just gotten lucky and found him and been able to disentangle him, he almost certainly would be dead now.
0: So what kind of conservation efforts are being made or statutes or bills, or mandates against the use of these ropes? or are there by the state of Georgia?
3: Well, um, unfortunately, there's not a lot that we as a, a state here in Georgia can do because um, a lot of, like I said, a lot of what is happening here is, is fishing that's occurring in the, in the northeast in Canada. Um, but that said, um, a lot of, most of the right whales are in federal waters at any given time, so it's really up to NOAA Fisheries. Um, in the United States, to um, to do this type of management, and there are a number of things that are being considered now that um, that I hope will you know have a positive impact. And one thing that's happening is that uh, fishermen are now working with researchers to develop types of um, uh, what's called ropeless gear, where they can send the pots down to the bottom to collect to catch lobster or, or crab, um, and basically call the buoy up to the surface only when they need it to, to haul the the, uh, the traps back. Hmm. Another thing that's being developed are, are weaker ropes and um, basically making rope so that it could break once the animals uh, become entangled in it. And another thing that's being considered that's going to be much more controversial with fishermen is um, seasonal closures. Uh, That's basically the idea that at certain times of year when lots of right whales are around, you basically would just prohibit this type of um, untended uh, gear from being in the water. Mm -hmm. And that's largely what we already do um, here in the southeast U.S. Um, Gill nets have been uh, banned for um, over a decade now because of, of some uh, right whale entanglements that happened um, uh, in previous decades. Uh, and also most of the, uh, all federal waters are now closed in the southeast to, um, to any kind of trap and pot gear that uses this type of rope also.
0: But before we close, what are you expecting or hoping to see over the next few months?
3: Yeah, well, you know, we're kind of on the downswing now at this point, and so I'm afraid uh, it's going to be another um, below average year. Uh, at this point, we have confirmed five calves. Uh, but to put, in, put it in perspective, back in the 2000s when the, the population w- was growing and had gotten to the point of there were at least 450, maybe 500 whales, uh, we were seeing over two dozen uh, calves per, per year back then. Um, so we, we're a long way from getting to the point where um, calving numbers have recovered. And um, we think that some of that is due to disruptions in forage that are occurring in in the northeast and Canada, uh, probably from from, um, climate change and and rising ocean temperatures and changes in ocean currents and the impact that that has on the food that the right whales depend on. Um, They really can't get pregnant and, and have calves unless they're feeding well. And so at this point, we just have to hope that things improve and the animals are able to find their food and resume calving at um, normal rates again.
0: That's Clay George from the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. He works as a wildlife biologist in the Wildlife Resources Division. Thanks so much, Clay. Thanks for having me. Well, we're letting the animals have the last word. These are right whale sounds from the website Discovery of Sounds of the Sea. Stay with us. There's more on Second Thought coming up after a short break. We're back with On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott. One hundred years ago, Americans were adjusting to life after a destabilizing world war. The Spanish flu decimated communities. Fears of Bolshevik-style communism ran rampant. And hundreds of thousands of returning veterans were competing for jobs and housing, including African-Americans, confident that fighting abroad earned them the right to freedom at home. Throughout the summer of 1919, the war between nations gave way to a war between races. Mobs targeted and lynched black Americans. Racist riots erupted in Houston, Chicago, Washington, D.C., and dozens of other cities and towns. Hundreds of people were killed. Civil rights activist James Weldon Johnson dubbed it the Red Summer, something not taught in a lot of classrooms. Well, it is part of the curriculum for Ursula Wolf Rocha. The high school history teacher covered the Red Summer of 1919 for Teen Vogue's OG History Series. And she's on the line from Portland, Oregon to fill us in. Hello Ursula.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: All right. But you know, this was something I had not learned about. I just gave a little bit of a summary, but can you fill out that picture of how things had changed for African Americans in the summer of 1919?
1: So there are, you know, a number of factors that are sort of driving the violence of Red Summer at a at um, you know, why 1919, why this moment? Uh the factors that get cited sort of most often in among the historiography on Red Summer are that it's happening during the Great Migration. So African-Americans moving away from, you know, the apartheid system of the South to, um, to places in the North that are less oppressive um, or differently oppressive. And that's changing the racial demographics of the country. Um, Some of the riots that we see seem to be directly tied to labor competition in these um, new urban settings or sometimes rural. So um, you have the riot in Chicago seems deeply impacted by what's going on with labor there. Um, And then you have these hundreds of thousands of African-American servicemen, veterans, who are returning from war, and they are publicly wearing their uniforms and simultaneously... Demanding first-class citizenship, mm. and the symbol of the black soldier in uniform in public spaces becomes again and again sort of a theme of um, violence in the in during Red Summer, which to me is a very powerful sort of symbol of what's really going on uh, in Red Summer.
0: Meaning that 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 somebody who's wearing a uniform of the United States Army as a black American is somehow a different kind of affront to those who held racist views?
1: Yeah, I think an assertion of agency in a public space and then what's not there but is implied is that these men were armed. (laughs) They were armed and they were defending the United States. And I think the unspoken piece is that they may arm themselves again and defend themselves again.
0: So, and this is also significant because during these, the violence that erupted here, black Americans fought back. How does that, how is that different from what had happened historically?
1: You know, I would argue that again and again and again, uh, we are looking at history books and um, sort of modern, popular, uh, historical interpretations where, um, for example, Black agency is largely written out of the fight against slavery itself or against um, or during the the era of Reconstruction in which, again, African Americans were arming themselves um, to defend themselves against White attempts to undo the reform, the Reconstruction reforms, um, or even in the 20th century civil rights movement, where there is a uh, sense that it was only the Black Panthers and Malcolm X who were who were advocating armed self-defense. When in fact, there were people in the South who were guarding the meetings of organizations like CORE and SNCC, which were yes nonviolent, but they needed a place to meet. And so there would be armed guards um, standing outside those meeting places. Now, of course, the media uh, characterized, the white media at the time characterized those uh, acts of armed self-defense as black violence. Um, but seems very clear that that's not what was going on. Well,
0: let's talk about some of these flashpoints. We have martial law declared in Charleston, South Carolina. In Bisbee, Arizona, an all-black 10th U.S. Cavalry, known the Buffalo soldiers that we think of, were attacked. In Norfolk, Virginia, a white mob attacked a homecoming celebration for black soldiers. Absolutely. And, and the most violent flashpoint, Chicago. What set things off there?
1: First of all, I just have to plug Eve Ewing's new book of poetry called 1919. Uh, if you're not familiar with Eve Ewing, she's a sociologist and poet, um, and she's from Chicago and writes about Chicago, and she just published a, po- a book of poems called 1919, which is a full-length sort of exposition of what happens in Chicago. Chicago is uh, just, to me, such the, the beginning of a story is tells is The most important part of the story. Um, it starts with uh, some um, children who are some African American children who are playing on a raft in Lake Michigan on a super, super hot day. Um, and the raft uh, kind of floats over into the white section of Lake Michigan. Now, this is Chicago, this is the north. There is not de jure segregation theoretically in the north. But of course there is by custom a white section of Lake Michigan and a black section of Lake Michigan. So some white folks on the beach start throwing rocks at these boys for having floated into the white section of the water. One of the rocks kills um, a child his name's Eugene Williams, and he uh, either gets hit in the head, which kills him, or he gets knocked unconscious and then drowns. It's a little unclear what happens, but he dies as a consequence of this. And um, and African Americans organize themselves and demand that the police arrest the man who has thrown this rock and killed this boy. Um, the police officer refuses to arrest the white man and, in fact, arrests a black man. Um, and African Americans c- continue to organize and continue to demand um, that there be some sort of justice for this. Mm-hmm. Um, that organizing results in then a counter organizing by white mobs, um, and then days and days of violence uh, is then set off from right. there.
0: So this begin, um, begins on July 27th. I, I see accounts here lasted about 13 days, two weeks. Yeah. White mobs led by ethnic Irish. Now, this yeah. is an important dynamic here. A lot of these, this mob violence, as far as I know, I haven't looked as deeply as you, appears to be that it's a, oftentimes ethnic whites, new Americans, immigrants, first generation Americans. What's, what's going on here?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think what happens, you know, the United States that one gets assimilated into really depends on uh, your background and your racial identity. So I think that white ethnic uh, immigrants end up, in the history of the 20th century anyway, end up assimilating into white supremacy. Um, and so I think there's a clear sense that, um There's competition for labor. There's competition for housing. And uh, I think that there are, as others have said, there are wages to whiteness. That is, that there is a benefit to these white ethnics to adopt white supremacy, um, whether that's conscious or unconscious.
0: My guest is Ursula Wolf Roca. She's a high school history teacher, and she wrote for Teen Vogue about the Red Summer of 1919. We're reflecting on some of these events that took place after World War One, and also getting schooled a little by Ms. Wolf Roca about how we think about history and how we tell this story. A couple things at play here: you mentioned the tensions for housing. Now, this is the Progressive Era where unionization is a new thing, and oftentimes. African-American people were hired as strike breakers. So Absolutely. adding to this whole tension. But you also mentioned the police in Chicago refused to arrest the attackers. Where were the police, in, in law enforcement in general, in these riots?
1: So there are very few cases in which uh, the police or law enforcement, uh, local police or law enforcement, uh, defuse the situation, and in fact, since you're in Georgia, you know the very first incident of Red Summer, which takes place on April 13th, is is an incident in Georgia. This is in Jenkins deeply, County. Yes, that deeply involves law enforcement. What what there. happened there? Well, what happened there is uh, that there was a black church, um, the Carswell Grove Baptist Church was having a big celebratory event. Uh, I think it was an anniversary of some sort. And they were having music and a cookout and speakers. And it was drawing uh, close to 3,000 African-Americans were going to come visit and and attend this event. Um, And one of the wealthiest Black landowners in Georgia, his name was Joe Ruffin, was going to be the marshal for the event. Um, he was on his way to the church and driving his car. He was a wealthy landowner, so yes, he has a car, and he's driving his car to the event, um, and he gets stopped in a traffic jam, and he's, which is you know, partly because so many people are convening on this church. Um, but he gets, uh, another car pulls up beside him. It has a sheriff from Jenkins County, a police officer from another county, and a friend of Ruffin's. Who has been picked up on by the police on you know trumped up charges? Um, Ruffin has a lot of stature in the county, um, and he tries to use that stature to bail out his friend on the spot, who really should not have been picked up in the first place. Um, the officers won't allow it. Violence ensues. Uh, six people are killed, four of them black, two of them white, um, and the this event is often. Uh, pointed to, to sort of as the kickoff of Red Summer, um, because it sort of has all the emblems of the riots that occur later. That is to say, there was a lot of violence in Georgia. I mean, Georgia had, I think, the highest number of lynchings that year, uh, the year before 1918 of anywhere in the United States. So what makes this event different? Well, uh, first, there's these symbols of black success and achievement that are always a part of Red Summer. Mm-hmm. He's so you've driving got this, a
0: car. He's got. He owns land, having a big party
1: exactly. And that this church is is hosting the largest event perhaps ever in East Georgia, right? You've got this this incredibly successful social institution um, that is sort of from a white supremacist perspective is flaunting its success by holding this event in the first place. Um, second you 've got law enforcement that are intervening to disrupt black life third there 's white uh, white mob violence. so after word gets out that there 's been this conflict between the police and Joe Ruffin, uh, whites organize themselves and descend on the house of john ruffin and and Lynch two of his sons and another white person, another African-American who was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, there is black self-defense in this story because Ruffin's sons, one of his sons, actually kills one of the police officers, um, does not just accept the victimization of his father, but actually takes action and, re- and responds.
0: Well, I think that one of the other points you are illuminating for us is... Throughout this year, throughout this summer, it's happening in Omaha, Nebraska, as you mentioned, you know, Chicago, northern cities. This is not contained to the south. You know, Lake Michigan was a segregated, it had a segregated beach for all intents and purposes.
1: Absolutely. So,
0: you know, during this time, federal troops were called in by President Wilson, uh, President Wilson has his own spotty history with racism, but I'm wondering about the aftermath. Like when did when did this frenzy going from city to city draw to a close and what happened?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. I'm sort of more interested in uh, looking at, and what I'm trying to get my students to see are sort of the through lines. And so I would argue that um, for example, the um, Tulsa massacre, which happens just two years later, is part of Red Summer. Um, and so I would say that it, in fact, does not stop. So it is true that there's this you know, incredible rash of activity um, that happens during 1919, but as with a disease right, that is systemic, but sometimes manifests itself in certain symptoms um, showing up at one time versus another, that's sort of how I think about red summer. It was a moment where the external symptoms became really, really clear that there was some underlying systematic problem. Um, And if you kind of look piece together, um, all of those moments of eruption, it it does to me argue for much more of a through line um than than some sort of exceptional moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are real successes that I think uh again get underplayed uh that are the that should be credited to African American activists. So for example, after the um Elaine case um in Elaine, Arkansas. Elaine, uh, Arkansas, yep. Yeah, there's this hundreds huge of people killed set of court cases that um, are basically spearheaded by the NAACP trying to argue for uh, trying to defend the African Americans who have been indicted following this episode of racial violence. So this is again a theme where the very people who are the victims of the violence are the ones that get indicted for being responsible for it. And there were some real successes that came out of the NAACP legal fights Um, and that NAACP activism around the Elaine case can be directly tied to future NAACP activism that we will see in what's, you know, formally thought of as the civil rights movement a couple of decades later.
0: Ursula wolf Roca, thank you very much for speaking with us.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Ursula Wolf Roca is a high school history teacher. She wrote about the Red Summer of 1919 for Teen Vogue's OG History column. We'll post a link to her column about the Red Summer of 1919 at our website gpbnews.org and leave you with Bessie Smith's Jailhouse Blues, a hit in 1919. From GPB News, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The U.S. women's soccer team takes on England today in a World Cup semifinal match. Fans may be getting into the spirit by waving the stars and stripes, or sporting jerseys with O'Hara or Brian emblazoned on the back. But it's not just clothing that makes supporters feel connected with players on the field it's a feeling that sitting in the stands or in front of a tv is like being part of a team emory university philosophy professor aaron tarver studies that connection she's author of the eye in team sports fandom and the reproduction of identity she explained how winning losing and belonging shape sports fans identities
4: hello aaron hi thanks for having me you're, you're
0: talking to the daughter of a die-hard red Sox fan who you know had been following them for decades and we still, you know, the Boston Red Sox, Chicago Cubs, the Red Sox have done much better, but until 2004, it had become part of an identity to love a losing team.
4: Exactly. The, the lovable losers. Um, I I grew up thinking of myself as being one of those fans of lovable losers that, that my team would always find a way to um, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, so yeah, one of the things that I try to investigate is this phenomenon. So what is it, if it's not the thrill of victory, um, how do we account for fans' persistence in being loyal to a specific team? And what I try to argue is that actually fandom is way bigger than just the experience of the euphoria of the stadium. If you think about what fans do, um, there's a wide range of practices. Um, We decorate our houses and our um, team's colors. We follow the minutia of um, drama around coaching changes in the newspaper. Um, We engage in debates with our fellow fans about who was the greatest quarterback of all time for our specific team. And all of those practices, I think, uh, contribute to um, not only our sense of ourselves as fans, but also they go toward helping us build a sense of our own identity. And I mean by that our identity as human beings. So our um, belonging to a particular community, um, our being uh, connected to our families, um, and all these other things that go into making us the type of self that we are.
0: Yeah, when you say identity, it's Interesting that so many of us talk about sports as saying our team or we, we lost that one or we were going to win again.
4: Exactly. And this is quite um, ubiquitous uh, in terms of fans, that fans, when they um, watch a game, uh, when, say, your team loses, um, you don't feel disappointed for them, right? You don't say like, oh, poor, poor those guys. That's really sad for them that they lost. Um, No, when the the Saints were eliminated from playoff contention, I was like, oh, my God, I'm sad for myself. I'm enraged. I feel that something has happened to me, right? Um, Or we believe that something has happened to us as a local community whose fortunes are bound up with that of the team on the field.
0: Well, so you're bringing up something. Is it identity or belonging? Or are they the same thing?
4: I would say those two things are inextricably bound with one another. Um, In fact, when we talk about how it is that human beings come to be the kinds of selves that they are, um, we don't know ourselves in isolation from other selves. And so, in fact, what's quite important um, in the formation of identity, and we know this not only from philosophy, but from um, psychology, and in fact, childhood development psychologists come to similar kinds of conclusions, that a big part of forming what philosophers call subjectivity, that that experience of being an I, a self, um, involves a couple of things. Number one, it involves knowing um, not only what I am, but who we are, right? The I in relation to um, a we, a community to which it belongs. But secondarily, and I would say just as importantly, crucial for forming the I, is knowing who we are not. And I I would say that this is one of the crucial features of sports fans and and what they're doing in in their sports fandom is not only loving a particular team and identifying with it, but also in many cases. um,
0: Hating the other team. Exactly.
4: (laughs) Very often fans who have been, let's say, jilted or who have had this sort of devastating experience of loss, um, that what we see is this desire for revenge. The next best thing to revenge is a phenomenon. Uh, there's a German word for it called schadenfreude. Mm-hmm. Um, and and schadenfreude, uh, as your listeners might know, means um, the pleasure we take uh, in someone else's misfortune. So um, this is a really common phenomenon amongst sports fans, so much so that it motivates, in many cases, um, rooting against, rooting for the, the downfall or the, the comeuppance, we could say, of, of a team who we want to be um, taken down a peg so that their, their fans, for example, might feel the same um, humiliation or devastation that, that we did.
0: Why in the world would anyone care about how well a total stranger can throw a ball? Well, that is a question asked by Emory University philosophy professor Aaron Tarver. She's author of The Eye in Team, Sports Fandom and the Reproduction of Identity. How about those who are not sports fans? Are they getting, is the assumption that they are getting those identity needs met in some other kind of way?
4: Well, sometimes the, that, Discourse of saying, "Well, I'm not a sports fan. I'm going to hide out in my house." Is like an identity, that, exactly. That's mm-hmm. a that's a way of building up sense of identity as well, and saying like, "I am rejecting the sort of mainstream understanding of what good entertainment is," or um, I'm actively, you know, suggesting that you know, perhaps football is barbaric or that I um, am am above this sort of um, plebeian behavior or something like that, that way of relating to football too can function as the same type of activity of telling ourselves who and what we are.
0: How about the idea, however, that football is barbaric or, you know, boxing is, but there are a growing number of people who do think, you know, I don't want my kids to play football. It's too dangerous. We're seeing what repetitive concussions due to a brain, it's exploitative, of uh, or or football players in the NFL have no regard for women, that kind of thing. Why then do so many of us keep on washing? Is there a
4: rationalization in this belonging? This is a question that I think those of us who identify as football fans need to be asking ourselves and and looking at ourselves pretty uh carefully as you say it absolutely is the case that increasingly people are concerned about the health um, long-term health effects of football and that this is resulting in changes in behavior particularly anyway as regards parents relations to their own children. So we do see in the last couple of years, actually, um, a drop off in participation in youth football. And in fact, uh, a growing number of uh, current and former NFL players even say things like, I will not let my son play football. Drew Brees, the quarterback of the Saints, is, is one person I know of who suggested that he wouldn't let his son play football. Um, so I think given that we know uh, when we're talking about our own children that there's something worrying about this, um, we ought to be asking ourselves why it is that we are willing to watch other people's sons continue to engage in this kind of um, at this point, demonstrably harmful activity. Now, as a, a philosopher who's interested in questions of um, ethics, I would say this is a difficult question, the, whether it is, um, we would say, morally permissible to continue to play football. The most common response that I hear from fans, and I ask fans this all the time, um, about whether they think it is morally acceptable for them to continue to watch football, given what they know about uh, the correlation between football and traumatic brain injury. The most common response is to say something like, well, the players are adults. They can make their own decisions. And so this doesn't have anything to do with me. I think there's two things to say about this. First of all the mere fact that the people who are playing the game are consenting that doesn't yet tell us anything about our moral status as Observers. So it it could very well be that people um, consent to do things that there's something really troubling still about our um, watching it for entertainment. But secondarily, I would say the the question of consent here is a quite complicated one. And philosophers who study, say, medical ethics, um, a field which is really interested in questions of consent, will say there are a variety of factors that can compromise, that call into question our ability to participate in fully informed consent. One of the things that might compromise informed consent would be um, whether a person can fully appreciate the consequences of what they are consenting to. And so this is one reason why we would say that children, for example, cannot consent to medical procedures. They need their parents to do so because um, children lack the cognitive capacity to be able to fully appreciate what, what the risks associated with a procedure would mean. And this comes into play in the case of football, because what we're talking about are people who have been playing football in many cases from the time that they were children. And so it's not totally clear that they have, from the beginning, been able to fully appreciate the consequences. For years, the NFL attempted to discredit and then sort of slow down the advance of research into the long-term neurological effects of concussions. More recently, when they started supporting studies, it turned out that they might, in fact, be trying to influence the outcome of those studies. So um, it's not totally clear to me that players always have a full appreciation of the ramifications of continuing to play football in particular because we just have not had a lot of information about this for a very long time.
0: So it's not just the players and the game, it's the actual power structure. Fan comes from the Latin fanaticus, right? You know, insanely uh, sort of inspired, maybe divinely inspired on some level. But the role of the fan in supporting a whole system is what I'm curious
4: about. Fans are, despite the fact that we tend to know that there's something wrong here, fans remain attached to this practice because it has become part of themselves, right? They understand themselves, who they are, um, in part through their engagement with football. And so, understandably, there's resistance on the part of fans to critically interrogate this practice or to think about giving it up. But I think what we have to remember and remind ourselves over and over again, that the people in this practice, that the players on the field under the helmets and shoulder pads, they are real people. They are human beings, just like um, our own um, friends and family and sons who we sometimes uh, try to keep out of these games and to take their concerns seriously when they're raising them. Erin Tarver,
0: she is Emory University philosophy professor. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Erin Tarver there, Emory University professor and author of The Eye in Team, Sports Fandom and the Reproduction of Identity. Before we leave you today, a trip to Andalusia, the home of Georgia author Flannery O'Connor, known worldwide as a writer of stories solidly grounded in the life and character of the mid-20th century South, specifically the city of Milledgeville, Georgia. Recently, researchers broke ground on an archaeological project at Andalusia in hopes of finding the exact spot where O'Connor kept her flock of about 40 peacocks. Why? So literary pilgrims of the future can better see and hear the world in which she lived. GPD's Emily Rose Thorne and Mariana Boccalo bring us this audio postcard.
2: A person ought to visit the home of his or her favorite writer because you need to hear the same silences that person heard. And so I came today in search of the silences that O'Connor heard. I drove down from the Hickory Nut Gorge of Western North Carolina just to spend a few minutes on the property and to watch a little bit of the dig. If I I can just get to the point where I feel like I understand O'Connor, I think I can understand something more about myself.
1: What we've been trying to do over the last few days is do an archaeological survey adjacent to what was historically called the Nail House, which was O'Connor's kind of parking garage and storage building, and to find and locate the original aviary and pea-fowl runs for her flock of over 40 uh, peacocks and also various other birds that were on the site. We're hoping to have a full restoration
2: done within the next five to seven years of the, of the property. My name is Liz Williamson. I'm with Southern Research Historic Preservation Consultants, and we started with some shovel tests um, spaced at 10 meter intervals just to see where there's artifact concentrations where uh, whether are not artifacts because that's informative too. This is what came out of the, what we call level one which is from the ground surface to about 10 centimeters. Huge thick ceramic piece lots of glass which you can I don't know if you can tell but It sort of has an amethyst look to it. Um, Lots of nails um, of various kinds, wire nails. My name is Margaret Witt. The first time I was here was 35 years ago. And I saw O'Connor's house for the first time then. And I spent a lifetime, I taught at the University of Denver. So I spent a lifetime teaching O'Connor and thinking about O'Connor and bringing students here. And
1: then you can feel free to sit and rock as I talk. Um, So the porch is original to the
2: it was just time to come. I bought my O'Connor book. I'm going to sit on her front porch. I'm going to read a story to myself. I loved uh, bringing students here to this property. Uh, I had a student one time who said, we're going to go to Milledgeville, Georgia and see Flannery O'Connor's home. I said, you can go there or you can go to Rome, Italy and check check out some historical art. And he went, hmm, Milledgeville or Rome? No question, Milledgeville. So he came here. I I I was able to tell Mrs. O'Connor before she died that story. She sort of remembered it the next time I came back. Uh, It was kind of touching that somebody would want to come here instead of (laughs) Rome. A good man is hard to find. The grandmother didn't want to go to Florida. She wanted to visit some of her connections in East Tennessee, and she was seizing at every chance to change Bailey's mind. Bailey was the son she lived with, her only boy. He was sitting at the edge of his chair.
0: Retired English professor Margaret Witt, historian Matt Davis, and archaeologist Liz Williamson at the excavation site at Andalusia, writer Flannery O'Connor's Milledgeville home. And we'll leave you to bask in the music of Kevin Morby. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton, Rowell, The Raven-Taylor, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our intern is Allison Kraussman. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kylie is senior producer. And Sarah Shariari is managing editor for GPB News. You can always reach us on Facebook. Our Facebook group is GPB Radio's On Second Thought. Or on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought.com. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. This is On Second Thought.